Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Uh, you can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for live Zoom events, including Charles Lane and Steve Lagerfeld, on April the 19th, discussing the future of American exceptionalism. Coming up on the show today, Lawrence Haas, former communications director for Vice President Al Gore, senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, and author of the new book, The Kennedys in the World, How Jack, Bobby and Ted Remade America's Empire. Uh, Larry, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks so much, Richard. Delighted to be here. So congratulations on the book. Uh, What made you want to write about the Kennedys in the world? Well, as you can appreciate as an author, uh, I discovered a new story about them. Um, I knew a bit about Jack and Bobby from, you know, my background in reading and writing about history. But I also observed Ted as a, while I worked as a journalist in Washington. And as I watched him on foreign policy, uh, I became intrigued for two reasons. First of all, he was quite active, and yet he is known widely in Washington as really the domestic liberal lion, health care, civil rights, labor rights, and all the rest. He's not known for his foreign policy work. And secondly, I was intrigued by what he was saying because I saw some commonalities with his brothers, but I also noticed some differences. So I became intrigued enough to do some research uh, uh, about him as well as further research about all three brothers, and I discovered a new story. Everybody knows that Joe and Rose Kennedy groomed the three boys for success, but what almost nobody knows is that they groomed them for a certain kind of success, not just to attain power, but to look abroad, to learn about the world. Uh, And in their upbringings, they came to appreciate uh, the different peoples and cultures and ideologies around the world, the challenges that they would present for the United States, and, and they got some ideas about what America should do about them. And over the course of more than 60 years in which at least one of the brothers held public office, uh, they came to take what they learned and apply that to really remake America's empire. They address not just broad issues of war and peace, but virtually every major global challenge that occurred in their times. Uh, The Soviet Union and China and the Cold War and Cuba and Latin America and South Africa and Northern Ireland and Iraq. And their influence was extraordinary. So it's a new story about these three iconic brothers And through them, it is a new look at America's role in the world since World War II. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me in the book is this story about Joe forcing them to think about uh, America in the world, look beyond America's borders, but also to articulate their ideas. For example, when he's ambassador, he sends the young Jack up to Scotland to speak to people about the possibility of an American convoy in a very difficult circumstance. Uh, He gets jobs for them, uh, each of them, as foreign correspondents. So it's not just about seeing the world, it's about thinking uh, about the world and articulating what you think about the world. Yes, and you know, um, most children at some point, if their parents have the resources, 
um, want to go and travel, travel around the country, travel around the world. But this is a different kind of thing. It's not like they were asking permission to travel. Joe was sending them once he thought they were old enough and not usually with one another, but usually with friends, colleagues, and very importantly, with mentors. So when they went abroad, it wasn't to lie on the beach. It was to learn. And Joe set up meetings with them with heads of state and top diplomats and military officials. And they, they went to war zones and learned about conflicts. And they walked the streets and talked to everyday people and learned about everyday life. And they came to develop a great appreciation for what life was like in different places around the world and the differences between people in Germany and people in France, uh, people in Europe and people in Asia, people in Latin America and people in Africa. What do they want? What are the challenges before them? And most importantly, what does this mean for the United States, particularly during the Cold War, but even after the Cold War? You know, America uh, has led the free world since World War II, but there's been great debate uh, throughout that time. What's the best way for us to lead? What's the best way for us to defend ourselves, uh, protect our allies, promote freedom and democracy? And they had an enormous influence in terms of uh, setting America's priorities and implementing America's policies. And as I said before, not just broadly, broad sense of war and peace, but in particular major global challenges all over the world over the course of more than six decades. And actually, what comes across very strongly in the book is their different personalities, the different worldviews that they have. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Famous, famously said that JFK was a realist disguised as a romantic and that Bobby was a romantic dis uh, disguised as a realist. Uh, I wonder what you think of that and where does, uh, where does Ted fit into that paradigm? Well, um, not surprisingly, since we're talking about a broad sweep of history of more than six decades, there's evolution. So throughout Jack's death in 1963, all three of the boys are Cold War, uh, Cold Warriors, hardcore Cold Warriors. And they all subscribe to the Cold War consensus of the time, which is that America's top global challenge must be to contain uh, Soviet communism. Uh, but then in the aftermath of Jack's death, uh, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, takes over, the world changes, and Bobby and Ted change with it. They evolve from these hardcore cold warriors to liberal doves. Now, part of that is the fact that they are sort of free from Jack's shadow and they can look at the world anew. But more importantly than that, the world really does change. They are no less critics of communism. And to their dying days, both of them, uh, they never lost their distaste for communism and they never confused uh, the free world with the communist world. But keep in mind, 
uh, after Jack dies and LBJ takes over, he takes what is a low-key American involvement in Vietnam and turns it into a major military operation going from 18,000 advisors under JFK to more than 500,000 troops. And what happens is that while Bobby and Ted retain, as I said, their distaste for communism, uh, what they find is that Vietnam becomes a bigger problem for the United States for all sorts of reasons than the Cold War uh, does. So their focus is less on the Cold War and more on this horror story of a war, and that shapes them in very big ways and is the beginning of their evolution away from this kind of hardcore cold warrior outlook that they had shared with Jack and again more of an evolution to liberal dove and i wonder how much of that do you think is coming up against the hard realities of of global politics and power i mean we are just coming up to the 60th anniversary of the uh, of the bay of pigs uh, in uh, 1961 um, which was a disaster for the new president kennedy what why why did that end up being such a such a mess and what lessons did he learn from that, do you think? Well, I think uh, when you think about the Bay of Pigs and then what happened in the subsequent two years because of the Bay of Pigs, you see a real maturation in this young president. So here it is. It's April of 1961. Uh, his military and intelligence advisors have thrust this plan, which really dated back to the Eisenhower administration. They thrust this plan on him. They assure him that it's likely to work, but he's got his doubts. It really doesn't add up from the beginning. There are going to be about 1,500 Cuban exiles, and under uh, cover of American power, they are going to invade Cuba and somehow ignite a populist uprising that is going to topple Fidel Castro. But Castro's got a force of 25,000, and not surprisingly, uh, with all the leaks in the newspapers, he sort of knows that this is going to happen beforehand. The troops are ready. They kill more than 100 of the exiles, and they imprison more than 1,000 of them. And as you say, it is a complete disaster. But what does JFK learn? He learns that he can't be cavalier that he must think much more deeply before he acts. He must understand the details of military ventures in, uh, much more, and he must really weigh much more the potential pitfalls of failure. And it convinces him most immediately not to do the other thing that his military advisors are recommending, which is that he send upwards of 60,000 American troops into Laos where there is a pro-Western uh, force fighting uh, pro-Soviet communist forces in, a, in an emerging civil war. He decides that's not the place where he wants to be, and he even says to Ted Sorensen afterward, thank God for the Bay of Pigs, because if not for the Bay of Pigs, we'd be in Laos, and that would be 100 times worse. So it convinces him not to go into Laos, and probably more importantly, a year later, 
It convinces him not to take the advice of his military advisors during the Cuban Missile Crisis to go in militarily, wipe out the Soviet missiles, and perhaps accompany it with an invasion to topple Castro. He decides on diplomacy. He decides to try to resolve the Cuban Missile Crisis peacefully, and he not only does it successfully, but he perhaps saves the world from a nuclear World War III. And by the time uh, 1963, his last year, rolls around, he is really a self-confident, mature, global, global leader on the cusp, probably, of greater things, more arms control and better relations with the Soviet Union. So his, his assassination in November of 1963 is not only a personal tragedy for the family, but is really a national tragedy because, as I said, he was really on his way to much greater things. Yeah, and you can see that in the speeches. I mean, it seems to me that the President Kennedy of the uh, of the inauguration speech is very different to the one uh, who makes that speech at American University in June 1963, talking about how we all inhabit this small planet, we all breathe the same air. That really does seem something very new there. Well, when you think about the inaugural address, you think about a few lines. Everybody thinks about the ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That's the volunteer, get involved, and help us succeed. But the other line that people remember is we will uh, pay any price, bear any burden uh, to ensure the survival and success of liberty. And he's really talking there about the Cold War, which he refers to as a twilight struggle, long-term against the forces of communism. And you really get this sense of impending militarism and confrontation with the Soviet Union. By June of 63, as you say, he's talking about genuine peace. And I think it really is in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, better understanding with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, uh, hopes of warming relations and more arms control. So by the time you hit June of 63, he is thinking far less about confrontation and far more about what's now known as detente which is not to, not to succumb to communism in any way, not to fail to protect our interests, but to learn to live with the fact that there is another superpower on this earth that we must share with them, and how are we going to move forward peacefully? It is an entirely different tone than the inaugural address. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, as, as well as being a, a successful historian, you've also been a, a professional political speechwriter at the very highest levels. I mean, how much of this is Kennedy? How much of it is Ted Sorensen, his brilliant speechwriter, do you think? Well, with regard to the inaugural, they were clearly sharing the wordsmithing on it till, till the very end. But you got the sense, really from whether it was the inaugural or the June speech, that it really is Sorensen trying to channel Kennedy. It is really Kennedy's vision. And it's so much Kennedy's vision in June of 63 that, you know, 
Traditionally, and I experienced this uh, being in the White House, uh, important presidential speeches are normally sent out widely throughout the White House and sometimes beyond, and in this particular case, certainly to the Defense Department and the State Department for comment among literally dozens of people. He was striking out, I'm talking about uh, JFK, in June of 63, in such a radically new direction that he told his top advisors not to circulate the speech until just a couple of days before he was going to deliver it. And the reason was that he really was not going to entertain ideas for big changes. He knew what he wanted to say, and it didn't matter to him whether the Secretary of Defense or the National Security Advisor or someone else had a different idea. So that reflects the self-confidence that he had developed by the middle of 1963 in terms of how he saw the world and how he thought the United States should now operate within it. Now, after Jack's assassination and LBJ takes over, Bobby and Ted, as you said earlier, they both change from Cold War hawks into uh, leading uh, leading uh, doves. I- I'm kind of curious whether that's personal. I mean, there's a deep antipathy uh, about uh, LBJ, particularly Bobby Kennedy detests uh, LBJ. Or is this actually something that is more philosophical, something more to do with their worldview? Well, it's hard to sort of draw the line in terms of percentages. I can't tell you, you know, whether it's 50-50, 60-40, 70-30. But I can tell you that with regard to Bobby, it is clearly both elements. It is the philosophical and it is the personal. Not only did Bobby detest uh, LBJ, but LBJ detested Bobby. And neither of them um, trusted one another to assess policy fairly when it came to one another. They always suspected that there was this personal motive uh, between them. Um, And in fact, Bobby was somewhat slow to oppose uh, uh, Johnson's great escalation of the military conflict for the very reason that he thought that LBJ would resist what Bobby was, you know, suggesting in terms of how to demilitarize things going forward um, out of a suspicion that Bobby was only saying that because it was LBJ. They had a much bigger clash much earlier, in fact, over Latin America. Uh, There were other uh, senators and House members that were further out front on opposing LBJ on Vietnam than uh, than Bobby was. But there is no question that the personal element was there. In fact, most strikingly, uh, Bobby resented the fact that there were JFK holdovers, uh, that is, people who served JFK that um, Johnson retained. Secretary of Defense Bob McNamara, uh, National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy, and a whole variety of other people on the foreign policy team that were now loyal to LBJ. Well, of course they were loyal to LBJ. LBJ was now the president. And when you work in an administration, you salute. The president makes the decision and you you advise, but once the president makes a decision, you carry out the decision. And Bobby's view of that really was quite irrational when you think about it. I mean, what else was it that they were supposed to do? 
uh, other than carry out the policies of the new president. Now, Ted was a little bit different. He did not have this rocky relationship with LBJ. Um, they trusted one another much more. LBJ was much more at ease with Ted Kennedy. And Ted also was careful in terms of slowly moving away from LBJ on Vietnam. And, and in fact, in the book, I write that there were really two stages. In 65 and 66, both Bobby and Ted were trying to convince LBJ to demilitarize, to move more quickly to negotiations, to get out of this quagmire. Uh, by the end of 66, they had both given up. And in 67 and 68, they had clearly broken with LBJ and were just opposing him very openly, very publicly, and calling for the United States to get out of this war as soon as possible. One really interesting element uh, of the book is that you say that through his 46 years in the Senate, Ted Kennedy actually has a greater long-term impact on remaking America and the wider world than either uh, Jack or Bobby. I mean, I suppose in some ways it, it's a reminder of that point actually that President Biden made uh, last week that you know actually politics is about making laws. And so uh, Ted Kennedy was central uh, in that position that he occupied in the Senate? You know, Jack uh, and Bobby both looked at public policy through the prism of being a chief executive. And when you are the president, you are visionary and you are proposing grand policy, broad sweep of policy, and then your proposals go to Capitol Hill and they get worked on. And that's where the real nitty gritty of legislation takes place. Jack and Bobby had no patience for it. They had no patience for retail politics. They were both senators and they had no patience for being in the Senate. They both viewed the Senate as mere stepping stones for greater office, the greater office that Jack attained uh, in the election of 1960 and the greater office that Bobby was uh, aiming for in 1968 before he was assassinated. Uh, Ted didn't see it that way. From his earliest days in the Senate, and he was elected in 62, so he started serving in early 1963, he saw the Senate as a long-term venture, as a place to do rewarding work. In fact, um, he began researching who were, the, who were his predecessors? Who were the great senators of Massachusetts who had held his seat? And he sent his staff out to bookstores and other places of memorabilia. And he would collect artifacts and speeches of his predecessors. Um, and he spent, uh, as you noted, more than 40 years in the Senate. And he had an enormous amount of influence in the shaping, not just of the domestic policy that he is known for, but the foreign policy that he is far less known for. He engineered as a member of the minority party. So this is when the Democrats were in the minority in the Senate. He engineered the congressional override of President Reagan's veto of sanctions against South Africa over apartheid. It was the first 
congressional override of a president on foreign policy in 11 years. And he engineered it as a minority member of the Senate. Uh, he um, spearheaded the congressional opposition to that forced Reagan to sort of scale back his proxy wars with the Soviets in Latin America. He was the major driving force uh, on the American side from the early 1970s all the way through 2007 in finally bringing peace to Northern Ireland. And in the area that he is least well known for, because his efforts were low key and behind the scenes, he was singularly responsible for convincing Moscow and Beijing to free scores and scores of political dissidents because he made it a condition of working with them that they would have to agree to release certain numbers of dissidents before he would agree to travel to Moscow or to Beijing for, leader, for meetings with leaders of those countries. So um, he is, you know, in the pantheon of senators, uh, no doubt top 10 of all time and probably top five. And while he is known uh, much more for his domestic achievements, healthcare, civil rights, labor rights, and things like that, um, I lay out in the book that he was at least equally influential on foreign policy. And to be a member of Congress and to be that influential on foreign policy, which is largely the purview of the President of the United States, is truly an extraordinary accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that this is actually a, a theme of your work, that your uh, previous book, uh, Harry and Arthur, about President Truman and, and uh, uh, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, uh, in many ways makes a similar point, emphasises that uh, these uh, magisterial figures in the Senate, uh, whatever we think of their politics, have a huge influence. Why, why do you think it is that we tend not to focus on that and are always drawn to the presidents? Well, uh, a whole variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, presidents dominate uh, the public debate. They have the singular bully pulpit. They most easily attract TV and radio and print coverage. Uh, they are the focus of power in Washington. And at the same time, Look, let's face it, legislating is uh, nitty gritty, detailed, not covered terribly well by the media, and to be very blunt about it, often quite boring. Uh, it's not the kind of thing people get galvanized over. It is rare. I mean, you will see it sometimes in a high profile civil rights debate or something else like that, where people are riveted by a Senate debate or riveted by a House debate. But that's a rare thing and it's not terribly surprising because as I said, you know, people uh, have their lives to live. They don't have time to be watching, you know, congressional drafting sessions, congressional hearings and things like that. But turn on the TV for a presidential speech. Sure, that's, that's kind of the focus of attention. We all look to uh, the head of state in some countries, it's a monarch. 
In other countries, it's, it's a czar. In the United States, it's a president. Yeah, it's it's of course it's it's uh, we currently have two uh, former senators, uh, Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris, uh, in the White House. Uh, you were the communications director, as I mentioned earlier, for another senator uh, who ended up in the White House, Vice President Gore. Um, you probably better than anybody understand what it's like uh, working in the White House. I wonder how do you feel that the current administration is doing in communicating uh, its message? Um, I think they're doing quite well, actually. You know, when you're in the White House, uh, even on a normal day, uh, you are drinking from a fire hose. Uh, Things are coming at you, both domestically and internationally, from more directions that you can even count. And President Biden and Vice President Harris came into office at a moment of real crisis, both at home and abroad. At home, of course, the continuing COVID-19 crisis and deep economic fallout. Uh, Abroad, uh, uh, rising China, resurgent Russia, and the aftermath of Trump's isolationism, which ruffled feathers among our most important allies in Europe and Asia. So this is, you know, a kind of what you might call a search and rescue operation by President Biden on a whole host of fronts. And I think that, you know, in the White House, they think about things like message of the day, message discipline, uh, boiling our message down to in simple terms that people can understand. When you consider everything that is going on, I think they have stayed pretty well focused. Domestically, it's all about COVID and the economy now and investing in the future. And overseas, it's about restoring America, uh, America's leadership role, America's moral voice, promoting human rights, and taking on our adversaries in uh, Beijing, Moscow, Tehran, and elsewhere. So I give them pretty high marks now under pretty trying circumstances. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that uh, President Biden seems to have bypassed the Kennedys and and gone back to FDR. There's been a lot of talk about uh, the New Deal, for example. Uh, Why do you think that is? Do you think perhaps the Kennedys are losing their currency within the Democratic Party? Oh, I really don't think so. I, I mean, there is an aspect, certainly, to what you're saying with regard to thinking big. And, you know, when you're a Democratic president, FDR is always a lodestar, just in terms of the tremendous changes that he was able to engineer under trying circumstances. And um, we think about a once in a lifetime pandemic combined with the deepest economic downturn since the 1930s, the Great Depression under FDR, it is only natural for a Democratic president to think of him or herself as the next FDR in terms of repairing the economy and investing in the future, which is very much what FDR did. But when you think about the particulars of how Joe Biden is, is um, oh, legislating and proposing and all the rest, I see great themes with regard to the Kennedys. 
Um, first, I see the, the theme of America's moral voice, which was very important to all three of the Kennedy brothers in terms of promoting human rights and drawing distinctions between free societies and authoritarian societies, which leads to my second point, which is that I see great parallels between the distinctions between um, the U.S.-led free world and the Soviet-led communist world uh, during the Cold War and how Biden is describing our confrontation, and it is a confrontation, uh, with China. Uh, two very different governing systems and our need to promote freedom and democracy and to make democracy work so that it is more appealing for countries in the developing world that right now are deciding between the U.S.-led freeway or the um, authoritarian-led uh, Chinese way. And that is exactly the way the United States was competing with the Soviet Union across the developing world all through the Cold War. And there were a variety of other parallels with the Kennedys. So while I understand the appeal of FDR and certainly the, you know, the left of the Democratic Party is dreaming big things, when you think about the way Biden is actually governing, I see an awful lot of Kennedyism that reflects all three of the brothers. And since I am a fan of the Kennedys, though I see the faults of all three, um, I'm actually a fan of the way Joe Biden is approaching um, America's global challenges. So the book is The Kennedys in the World, How Jack, Bobby and Ted Remade America's Empire. It's written by my guest Lawrence House and published by Potomac Books. Uh, but for now, Larry, congratulations again and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>